You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hey everyone, this is Krista Bontrager. I want to thank you for watching today. And this is part two in a conversation that we're having about race and racial unity. And we're calling it, Should Christians Denounce Whiteness? And uh, really starting to get into the thick of what the term whiteness means. And I'm, once again, I'm joined by my co-host on all the things, Monique Dusan. Hi, I was wondering if you was going to say, see me here. I was just like, I'm just going to sit here and wait. Uh, Monique's background is in social work and church work social and work. mission work. I got a bachelor's in sociology with an emphasis in social work, a minor in social work. I have been a children's pastor and I have also lived overseas for the last South Africa. Yeah. South Africa. The last four and a half years. Yeah. Um, been home a year. So four and a half years prior to that. And grew up in South central Los Angeles grew up in South LA. But I think you're uniquely positioned to talk about issues related to race because of your background and your history in social work, but also living overseas, going to other countries as well. You've been to Haiti a couple of times and Zambia quite a few times. Yeah. Um, I've been to Botswana. I've been to Botswana, Dubai. And yeah. A few some, places. Yeah. So kind of what I like about Monique is she brings a global perspective, but she also brings a different cultural perspective. And I think that we make a good team in talking about these things. So we're going to pick up a little bit where we left off with watching this video from the Sparrow Conference with Akemeni Uwan. All right, let's uh, pick it up right where we left off and then we'll comment as we go. Let's cue it up. So, so it's a it's a power structure is what whiteness is, and so the 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 thing for white women in this because women in here to do is to you have to divest from whiteness. You have to divest from whiteness because what happened was that your ancestors actually made a deliberate choice to rid themselves of their ethnic identity, and by doing so, they actually stripped. Africans in America of their ethnic identity, right? Okay. So I can sit here and say. So she says that whiteness is a power structure, but doesn't really give, I think, much context and real definition to what she's saying. And from what I understand, I wasn't present at the conference, but many people walked out at this. I think it's around this time when she was telling um, white women that they need to divest from their whiteness. Because if you don't know how she's using the term whiteness, and we said this last time, mm -hmm. it makes it sound like she's telling you to get rid of your skin color. Yes. Which is not exactly what she's talking about. What she is talking about is the, is social systems and social structures. So you look at like an economic system, um, an education system, things that run throughout our government or throughout our nation. She's saying that those have been infiltrated by white culture or a white mindset that would be against people of color. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm still struggling to understand what systems are and this whole terminology of something that is systemic race, systemically racist. It's still, a bit of a hazy area for me. So I'm sure we'll have some future conversations trying to explore and understand this better. Um, I heard a definition just today that was sort of helpful to me that a, a system is something that a racist system is something that is set up so that it always has a racist outcome Yeah, that you don't necessarily, you don't even need racist individuals in the system. It's just the system itself is going to shoot out racist outputs, outcomes. Yeah. outcomes. And then she goes on to say that whiteness is violent and evil. And that's all quite confusing to, to me as a white person, because while I see evil that has resulted from some things that white people have done, I also see great good. 
And so it's hard for me to understand and identify. And essentially what she's saying is that you're a racist. Even if you don't know you're a racist, you're probably a racist unless you do certain things to be anti-racist. Yes. I think that's eventually where she goes. Yeah. That um, without even knowing that you're participating in a system, you are participating in a system and that system allows you not to have to dig deep or understand what is happening to people of color. I think that's where she's going to go. I can see what she's saying. Like there have been policies or laws set into place. Um, but I'm thinking 50 years ago, I'm not necessarily seeing today, but I could be missing something. Yeah. Um, and I would agree with you 50 years ago. Definitely. I can see the systemic racism, but I, I struggle with what's there for us today. Like what is the other projects that we need to do to weed out systemic racism. Well, I think her argument would be that because these things were in place 50 years ago, the children from the people who originally benefited are still benefiting today. Yeah. It's an assumption that everyone truly did benefit. And even if everyone truly did benefit, yeah, I can, I can even lean more toward that. Like with the issue of redlining, I can lean toward saying, okay, when redlining was legal, everybody had some kind of benefit to that. Every white person. Yes. I cannot necessarily say, eh, uh, I don't, I, I, again, I'm cautious to even say every white person, but I, I will say that there were huge benefits to being white during a season when redlining was legal. Does that mean that every white person benefited from redlining? I don't know that I believe that, but I will say that there were benefits to all whites. The, the benefit was available. Yeah. I guess I'll say that. Yeah. Um, and that but, would be clear to me how that could be a racist system. But are people still benefiting today? I don't know. I think that's a large assumption. And that also puts the burden on people who may not have benefited from, you know, from but this. She's also making a larger claim. She makes this very, what we call in logic, I think, like a, a hasty generalization that all whiteness culture is evil, vile, wicked. Yes. I, I just don't buy that because there's, there's, I mean, I think you could just have, I think the, the picture is just so much more complex than that. What I would say is that one, the issue is sin. Yes. And so every culture, every person, every ethnic group has an issue with sin. Yeah. And white culture. And again, I use these quotes because I don't believe that white culture, whatever, however you want to define that, um, would be what is irredemptive, non-redemptive. You know what I mean? Like, is there nothing good even in saying, okay, there was Jim Crow. Okay. There was redlining. Okay. There are issues within X, Y, or Z system. So now because people are white, we now attribute them to the system and they are racist. Among white people, there's an idea of sort of leaving most of your heritage behind mm -hmm. of the Euro European heritage. And there was this idea of the, the American melting pot where then you adopt American ideals and American values and that those were distinct and different from what you left as my grandfather would say in the old country. Um, he wasn't as interested in being a, a Dutch person as he was in being an American. And, and what her suggestion is, is that me as a white person, I left someone in my family line, left their ethnicity behind and that I need to go back and get in touch with, you know, who I, who I was through them. Mm. I, I don't know if I buy that argument. I think I don't, well, one, no, I don't buy that. But two, I also think that a lot of, uh, I don't want to say a lot of, I have talked to some black women because it was a, 
it was a circle we were in and um we talked about the idea of choosing to leave the old country versus being made or forced to leave the old country and i'm wondering if that is even part of the pain in this movement and dialogue around reconciliation is understanding that for white Americans, for many, there was choice. And for black Americans, for many, there was not. So, I mean, and that's looking way back. Like you said, your grandfather, my great, great, great grandmother, great, maybe four greats, you know, um, that, there's something about this idea of choice. But I think that what's different between our two cultures is that I don't reflect on much on my grandparents' um, immigration. They came here. I've never been to Holland. I don't know Dutch. You know, I'm grateful that my grandfather, my great grandfather came and brought all his sons. But it's not like a huge part of my identity. Whereas the fact that you're talking about something that happened potentially 150 years ago in your family, um, you're, you talk about it as if it's still an issue for you today, that your family came here against their choice. And that that still kind of lingers for you as part of your core understanding of who you are. Mm -hmm. And that the present is the past and the past is the present and it's all kind of collapse together i think much more for people in the black culture than it is for 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 us you know yeah and that's just an observation as, as an outsider and I, I could be totally wrong but the fact that it's still an issue for you that someone in your ancestry came here against their choice that that's still like an issue that feels violating for you is something i think that people need to understand because we don't wrestle no, I, I, I mean, we've talked about that before. Like there is definitely for me anyway, this, like, can we just, can we just talk for a minute? You know, like that, Hey, leaving the old country and making that cognizant choice wasn't necessarily the option for black Americans or African slaves when they came over, it was definitely like a force. And so the, the best thing I feel like a lot of people could do was just to plow forward in the worst of circumstances. So I need to learn this language. I need to learn to read. I need, you know, there were a bunch of different things that needed to be done in order to survive and continue and, you know, grateful that they did, but it, it, to me, it does feel a little different. It does, um, it does feel a bit more like choice wasn't necessarily given. So when I hear people say, well, why didn't you guys just get past it? Like, you know, we, we came over and, you know, we left the old country, why don't, why don't you guys just think about it the same? And it was like, well, to me, there was no leaving the old country there. I don't even know what my old country would be. Um, but in looking back over history, I know that that wasn't, you know, there was no decision to say, hey, I am going to go and make a better life for my family in this new world. And so yeah. I think that is where it kind of feels probably like it collapses because there is in some ways, um, you know, that, that tie in reminder. How does critical race theory address the reality that slavery is still happening today and it's largely brown and black people enslaving other brown and black people. It's not a whiteness problem. Like how do they address that? Because the setup here feels like slavery is a whiteness problem. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how, from a critical theory perspective or critical race theory perspective, they would address that. Well, I also think that for a lot of today's like more nuanced conversations, they're only looking at America. 
No one is. I mean, Americans in general are so introspective. We rarely look out at the rest of the world and say, hey, how is this impacting the rest of the world? Um, And so with such introspection, we are only looking at how did American whites impact this system or how did slavery impact African-Americans and this dance between the two groups on our continent, not considering that this dance has been going on for hundreds of years before American slavery, mm-hmm. thousands, thousands of years before American slavery. And that that dance has been going on for a long time between people who, like you said, wore the same skin color. Okay. Let's uh, keep going here. I will be a BBO in the new heavens and new earth, but you Elizabeth can't yet say that. But in my sanctified imagination, I believe that God will give you and my, my sisters, you know, according to the flesh, will be given their ethnic identities in the new heavens and new earth. I believe that. Right deep down in my core, I believe that. And I pray to that end. Because I, we have to understand something. Whiteness is, is wicked. It is wicked. It always means it's, it's rooted in violence. It's rooted in theft. It's rooted in plunder. It's rooted in power and privilege, which we just saw two weeks ago with the college scandal. So I, I, I mean, I have receipts here. So the, the goal for our white sisters is to rediscover your ethnic heritage. So I'm not pulling something away from you okay, without so telling you to. One of the things that what I hear her saying is that this is the way that white people act. And so and the systems that have been created by whites. And so if that is the case, then to me, what would organically come from that is that we wouldn't see these things happening in other cultures, but we do see these things happening in other cultures. And so my question is, well, how does, how does it show up in other cultures? I think that it's because it is a sin problem. It is a heart problem. It's an See, I would say, heart. I would say the problem is that humanity is wicked, not that white people are wicked. Yes. That, that all human cultures have sins-based systems. All cultures have systems set up that result in oppression. Um, but that's a sin problem. That's a universal human problem. That's not necessarily just a white problem. I agree. Yeah. I do agree. Okay. All right, let's keep going. To replace it. So the goal for you all is to recover what your ancestors deliberately, right, discarded. So that means return to whatever that ethnic identity is. Is it, are you Italian? Are you Irish? Are you Polish? Are you Turkish? Whatever that, whatever that was, you have to do that work to find out what that is. Pull into that. Learn what, what that cultural heritage is. Celebrate that. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be a work on your part. But okay. that is the work. That- so if culture is made up of common religion, language, customs, customs things like that, why is it that the American culture cannot be celebrated. Like, why must you go back to Turkey? Or is she saying that this culture is just so bad that you should leave it? But because what I hear is that she's saying it's not a culture at all. Yeah, it's, it's like American culture isn't a real culture, which I would argue that it is. I would argue that my grandparents would tell you there are certain values of what it means to be an American I just take concern with the fact that I am proud to be an American. My subculture would be that I am African-American, but like at the heart of it, I'm American. Yeah. And to me, there's nothing wrong with celebrating that. I don't know that in the new heavens and the new earth, the Lord is going to imbue upon me my West African Whatever that is. Yeah. Or that I'll start speaking Creole when I get to glory because <laughs> my dad was from, you know, Haiti. Right. So 
I just I think there there's something amiss. Would there. you even be able to do the work? Because you don't know that much about your heritage. No. I don't know if you could do the work. I could do some of the work based on my Haitian side. Yeah, but, but Haitians are just the product is slavery. Slave ships stopped the French. Yeah. Stopped at a different island. That's true. That's <laughs> I think here is a good point or a good place to talk about where we see this at in the church. Why? Like Again, why do we need to be careful about this infiltrating or seeping into our Christian dialogue? I think that part of the answer to that comes from Ephesians chapters two and three. If I understand them correctly, um, Paul makes quite an extensive argument there about two different racial groups, Jews and Gentiles. And basically a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. Mm -hmm. So, right and wrong. Yeah. Uh, and what he's arguing there is that the church is made up of people from everywhere, all over the ancient world, um, and that they're all part of Christ's one body. And he's, he says that Christ came and that in his death and through his death, he created one new man. And a way of saying that, another way of saying that in our modern language would say, he created a new humanity that we will be unified and that the distinctiveness of whether you're a Jew or whether you're not a Jew is of secondary importance. Now it might benefit me to show my Jewishness if I'm trying to win other Jews to Christ and I'm trying to preach the gospel to them, then my Jewishness may have be of some help and cultural advantage for me to reach other Jewish people. But when I come to church on Sunday, on the Lord's day, and I sit down to eat meals with other Christians who are from Greece or Alexandria, North Africa, or Carthage, or Galatia in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, that my, my racial cultural makeup is now of secondary importance because we are unified in Christ and that there's a new humanity that has been created. And it talks about building a bond of peace between us and that um, out of two becomes one. I, I agree. The way that it strikes me is um, that in order for there to be unity, there first must be even more division. You need to go to your separate corner because you're Dutch. Go find out about your Dutch. From a critical race theory yeah. standpoint, not what you're arguing. You're just saying from a critical, from, from a critical race. When I hear this, yeah. what wearies me about bringing this into the church is that I feel like what they're saying is you're Dutch. So you need to go and do the work, do the work, find out about your Dutchness. You're Turkish. Go find out about your, Turkishness. Yeah. You're from Poland. Go find out about You're being Polish, Polish. Yeah. and all of that. And then after you found out about all of that, then come back and then we can be unified. That isn't what Christ calls us to. There is no extra work that needs to be done before we can be unified. And that's the the hard I think what the hard project is of what Christ calls us to is that he says, I'm going to take people that you're, are your cultural enemies, your religious enemies, your social enemies, mm -hmm. rich versus poor, whatever. And he said, now I'm binding you together in the spirit realm mm -hmm. and you're all one. Yes. Now that <laughs> doesn't mean, and I want to be clear on this too, so that it doesn't seem like we're saying so any division based on partiality or race or, you know, whatever is not important, but that this extra work doesn't need to be done before we can be unified. We can come together. We are called together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even now having conversations like we do about race and inequalities or things that, that happen like that, still should go forward 
But in order for us to have that conversation, I don't need to wait for you to go and do this extra work. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, I think the way that I've thought about it is that the unity should be our ground or our foundation. And we really have to be um, solid in that foundation because the foundation is Christ and his work on the cross. And that makes us one. And that somehow that has to get to a reality where we're living it out as one and as we do that, my theory is that if, if we're really loving the Lord and we're really being conformed to his image, we'll start to notice disparities that are happening to our brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. because, if, we're, if, if we're really walking in yeah. holiness, those things will emerge. Because no one is saying that disparities aren't real. No, disparities are part of the sinful human condition. Mm -hmm. um, they're absolutely real. And you see disparities all over creation. I mean, there's all manner of disparities. Yeah. Um, I think that the question is, is what kinds of disparities do we see? What kinds of disparities end in unfair treatment or unjust treatment? That's a bigger question. But we can't get to those conversations, I don't think, if we, don't, if we aren't solid on the unity first. Yeah. And from my viewpoint, I don't know that Christ calls us to first go and find out about ourselves before we can be unified. Yeah. Yeah. Then that's what I hear and what she's saying. If I'm understanding the point, it does seem like we first must get more divided, more introspective before we come together. And I, I just don't see that, that pattern in scripture. And again, she's building a lot. As we said, this, in part one, um, she's building a lot on this one verse in Revelation 7 about every tribe and tongue and what she's seeing as ethnicity coming in and, and into the eternal state. All right, let's keep going here. The, the work is for you to divest from whiteness, and the work is also for people of color to divest from whiteness, too. All right? And now we do that by... Not centering whiteness, but it means like like trying to actually begin to imagine a world where <laughs> where your whole identity is not bound to oppression, is not bound to uh, which which I think is hard to imagine because we live in a white supremacist nation. It takes a lot of work, and you have to do a lot of unlearning. And I think that what is sometimes so revolutionary, uh, well, at least one thing that might be revolutionary about Truth's Table is that on Truth's Table, myself, Michelle, and Christina, we do not center whiteness. You'll never hear an episode about white guilt. Like, let's talk about white guilt. We're not going to do that. We'll never do an episode on white privilege. We center the concerns and the needs of black women. We, we, are, we are in some ways trying to dream up what a black futures might look like um, apart from oppression. You know, and in some ways, that's, that's like, I think that's a glimpse of like what the new heavens and new earth looks like. It's like, man, what does it mean to live apart, live in a society that's peaceful, to live in a, a society where we're not subjugated? You know, um, so I think that those are some of the, the things I'm thinking again, about. I'm sorry, I talked. Again, there is the thought that we don't center whiteness. Basically, what she's saying is we center blackness. So we ain't going to talk about whites. We're going to talk about blacks. I have no problem. That's your show. But don't come and say we are going to be unified. We are creating unity by leaving out my white sisters. It doesn't work. You can't have both. You can't say, I am going to intentionally just leave them out. Now, if I have a show where I only want to reach out to black women, that's my prerogative. Sure. But I also can't say that my show is directly intended to build unity. Or like I see some Facebook groups that are intended to build unity and it's like open for everyone who wants to talk about reconciliation and all of that. But whites aren't allowed to speak there. And so, this might be new for some people. There okay. are a couple of very prominent Facebook groups where part of the, the rules of engagement in, in the group is that you have to engage in silence for the first like 60 days or something yeah, like that. You have to read a lot of books. It's like taking a college class. And they're critical race theory they're books. They're all critical race theory books. Um, and then you have to um, even at times 
allow only people of color to make the posts and you can only comment if under, given permission by a person a, of, of color, color. Right. Or people of color can say on the post, you are not allowed to answer. Do not speak. I don't see that as building unity within the body, even in sharing thought. Like the fact that you and I disagree about many things sometimes allows for shared thought. It allows for process. It allows for me to think about how you're thinking about something and you to think about how I'm thinking about something. But to say that you've had the podium for much too long, just because things were set up in a way which allowed whites to have a podium, so to speak, does not mean that what you have to say today is irrelevant. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm just, cause I'm, 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 kind of flying off the seat of my pants too as I'm hearing her speak and trying to put it together and I'm like no that that strikes me not as unifying well I think that it's it's hard for me as a white person to think about okay if my end goal is emulating Christ and the unity that he's purchased through his blood and then by that we're creating one new humanity how do I get there when I'm in a Facebook group that allows me to join, but then tells me I can't really participate. It's, it's a little hard for me to understand. It almost feels like reverse segregation. Mm -hmm. And is that where, where they're trying to go? Are they trying to go back to some type of segregation? I don't think so. Honestly, um, I, in some instances, for some things, I think that some people would want whites to get that feeling and impact of what happened to blacks during segregation, during um, the civil rights era and all of that. In the group that I was in, I never got the feeling like, oh, they're intentionally trying to segregate in that sense. Um but at the end of the day, there is a form of partiality. Yeah. And so I have to consider that like, OK, we are going to tell this entire group of people not to speak. And we've put it in such a way. This is another problem that I see with bringing this into the church is that we, we frame it in such a way that people just buy in because they don't want to be racist. And the in last the thing I'm going to tell you right now, the last thing a white person wants to be. Is racist. Yeah. And so we will undergo, we will willingly choose to undergo all manner of I don't know, uh rules if it'll help the perception that we're not that we're not racist. Yeah, and unfortunately, I wish that there were more people to say, "Hey, this isn't biblical." You know, like, this is great. I can get on board with this if I'm in the world. This is a worldview that is secular. This is not what Christ has called us to. This does not build Christian unity. This does not build Christ as our foundation. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard conversation. And I mean, even in, in this, people are probably sensing that we're even struggling because it just yeah. represents... So this, this conversation is just symbolic of so many hard conversations. We've had to work our way through the weeds because both of us have been so conditioned by the culture in ways it, over scripture. That our culture is telling both of us in different ways how to react, how to think, um, how to live. And you and I are both trying to find our way through the weeds of, well, what does Christ say? Mm -hmm. How do I, how do I understand the sinful part of the culture that I've come from and then truly try to walk out holiness with another person? Yeah. And our cultures have told us two very, very different. different ways of thinking about one another, talking to one another, regarding one another, denigrating one another. Um, sometimes politely, sometimes overtly. Mm -hmm. And we're both like, okay, how do we walk through this 
and try to emulate Christ and still be holy at the end. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and still remain in deep relationship. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. All right, let's keep going. Well, come on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, come on. You know, I think um, it's this reality that we live in a history Mm -hmm. and we have to acknowledge the history. I think for many of us, it's just invisible. Um, And to acknowledge that where we are is not in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of it, like you, you introed with sin, is just really, really dark. Um, and there's been a lot of just destruction that's happened in our country mm. and the way to healing and the way for us to be who God has called us to be, a people who he has given us ethnicity, mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. something intentional Amen. and something beautiful. And there's something for all of us in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to discover the beautiful things, but also to acknowledge the hard things so that we can walk to healing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that middle space of, man, how do I walk through some of these hard conversations of some of these realities that might just bring up something guttural in me um, for the better picture. And the better picture is what we talk about with Revelation. The better picture is what we talk about with the kingdom of God's glory and who we will be in eternity. And so how do we push forward those things of the kingdom now? And I think for us to be able to sit in this middle space that is uncomfortable, but we push towards the beauty. Um, And we do it on behalf of other sisters. I think especially here that people press into that space helps me, helps you, helps all of us um, live in this reality. In Galatians 3.28, I think this is a conversation um, that I've seen. I I mean, I think you and I would agree with that. Like everything she just said there. Yeah, I definitely. It's just we think that we're going to the same destination, but we're getting there differently. The only thing I do disagree with is early on, she says, um, I need to go back to it. Um, she makes kind of a, an assertion of like the only way we can like get to be who Christ, who Christ has destined us to be. I don't believe that in order for us to get to who Christ has destined me to be, I ever need to talk to you about race. I feel like he has laid out in scripture. He says, I have given you all that you need for life and godliness. And I could be reading that verse wrong and I'm not a theologian. So yes, I 100% could be reading that wrong, but I do believe that it's written out in the word. This is, this is the way like walk in this. And if I don't participate in race, in race conversations, if I don't divest from whiteness, if I don't experience whatever her, um, definition of my cultural awakening to my blackness is that I won't walk in the fullness of what God has for me. I just don't believe it. That's very interesting because I, I, I think that many people would, some are going to find that offensive and some are going to find that incredibly encouraging. Um, I think that reading through Ephesians two and three, my understanding of Paul's argument there is that, um, it's Christ over everything. It's Christ over ethnicity. It's Christ over race. It's Christ over socioeconomic status. It's, it's Christ over um, my state, whether I'm royal royalty or whether I'm a common person, it's Christ over everything and Christ in us. Um, I think that's the radical message of the gospel is the Holy spirit can live in a man and a woman, just the same. He can live in a rich and a poor person just the same. He can live in a Jew or a Gentile just the same. That is the radical message of the gospel. The radical message of the gospel is where there's disparities in the world, where there's differences in the world, in the spirit realm, there actually can be unity. Yes. And what we see or what I see, I'll say, with critical race theory entering into the church is that it does not bring unity. It brings oppressed and oppressor. And we are supposed to be living in unity within the church. Like, like I said, if you want to adopt this worldview in the world, by all means, run with it, smoke a cigar by it. That's your business. But in the church, this is something that is polluting our unity. Yeah. And I think we have a ways to go. We don't want uh, that conversation about unity to um, ignore the reality that there are racial or cultural differences. But the question that has to always be before us is 
how do we keep Christ preeminent? Mm -hmm. How do we keep the unity at the foundation and then go from there? Yeah. So, all right, let's keep going. Let's hear what she has to say about Galatians. In her, it talks about there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so we see this intersection between our Christian identity and a racial identity. And, and some of you all in here might have engaged this conversation. Hey, we're just Christians. Like, we're all Christians. And so this, this kind of right, race right, conversation right. doesn't matter because everything was taken care of at the cross. How do we engage that knowing what we know? And I think I appreciate the fact that you think deeply about the things of God and how they intersect with everything else. And that matters. Like, we have to think about intersects with, with culture and with politics and, and with justice issues. How do we think deeply about what Paul is talking about in Galatians? What does it mean for us to have a Christian identity and how does it intersect with our ethnicity, what God's given us? Yeah, yeah. Um, that scripture, <laughs> 328. I mean, gosh, that, that scripture has been used so many times to silence, you know, uh, me as a black woman, I'm sure as people of color, whenever we're bringing up grievances and things that we've experienced, um, it oftentimes it's used as a way to like a gotcha card, you know, if you will, or it's like, I slam this down. It doesn't matter. Like we're all one and all of a sudden nobody sees race, right? It's been used as a way to perpetuate colorblindness, if you will. Um, but the reality is that when it comes to gender though, all of a sudden that, that, that scripture don't apply no more, right? So when a woman wants to go preach, Behind a pulpit, all of a sudden, oh, 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 we not, we not on one now, right? Okay, so <laughs> Paul is not saying, you know, he's not saying that we have now all become ghosts, you know, or, or just, just spirits. We are soul and body. Um, and Paul, of all people, was like, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, man. I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was doing this, that, and the third, right? But in that context, in, I think it was in Philippians, where he, he's trying to say, um, that we should not put our confidence in our flesh, should not put our confidence, right, in our ethnic identity, which actually still kind of works um, here. And so the reality is that um, God has made us as we are on purpose. So that means he made me black on purpose, and I'm grateful for it. Um, I love, even though it is difficult, right, to be a black woman in America um, and to be in the church as a black, uh, uh, a black woman, I love it. I would not trade it for the world at all. Um, but he's not saying, you know, that there are not distinctions because unity presupposes distinctions, right? You know, I mean, what are we, what are we uniting over if we're all the same? I mean, right? Okay. There's no, there's no tension. All right. So some issues here. So as we've been talking about unity as our foundation, now she's bringing up a very common objection that, and I think that on um, my side of the table as the white person in the conversation, um, I think that I need to give a word of explanation to our white viewers to, to really tease this out because this has taken me a long time to try to understand this point. Um, I think that white people have a tendency to think that the end goal is being colorblind. But I think we need to understand that um, colorblindness is not the goal. Yes. You know, so let's talk. I'm, I'm going to say what I have to say about this and then you can please preach. I feel like you are. I think it'll come you're on a good track. Maybe, uh, a little easier from from me. Yes. So I think that people have used Galatians three and um, Ephesians two and three um, in a misinformed way, because, yes, unity is the foundation. Unity in Christ is the foundation, but it doesn't erase our distinctives like we are still male and female i don't cease i don't become androgynous simply because i'm in christ i i'm still a woman Mm -hmm. and my husband is still a man and my ethnicity or my race isn't done away with simply because i'm in christ you're still black i'm still white every day every day every day yeah and, uh, you know, depending on uh, whether those genetic tests are right, I, I, I'm, I'm not Jewish, but the uh, family uh, lore is that we are. So <laughs> who knows? But uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's an important point to understand that it's okay to notice somebody's black and it's okay to notice that somebody's white and it's okay to notice that somebody's Italian. Uh, we don't stop being in our physical bodies um just because we're in christ just because we're in christ if i'm rich i'm still rich now i have some responsibilities 
for how I'm going to live my life as a Christian who's rich. I'm going to have some responsibilities for how to live my life as a Christian if I'm poor. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of um, teaching in scripture about how we're all to work hard and, and about debt. And, you know, there's, there's some instructions there. There's instructions about me from a racial perspective. There's instructions for me from a cultural perspective. There's instructions for me as a woman and as a man and as a child. We don't lose those distinctions in the physical world. To flatten all that out is to commit a very ancient heresy called Gnosticism, where we denigrate the physical world, we deny the physical world, and we just are focused on the spiritual reality. The historic Christian worldview says, you know, there's, there is the spiritual reality that, yes, we are one in Christ, but we don't flatten out our, mm-hmm. our physical distinctives. So when we, as white people, use the end goal as being colorblind, I hear the heart behind that. What, we, we, what we're trying to say is that we're not showing partiality um, according to race. Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to very inartfully say. I'm glad you broke that down for me. And because we've had conversations about yeah. that where I'm like, no, yeah. see this, yeah. see this melanin. Yes. Yeah. And when we go to the beach, it's very clear. <laughs> There's differences. Yes. There's one of us who's putting on sunscreen. Uh, but, there's me who's <laughs> absorbing all the sun. Yeah, that's right. But I think that there's a difference between noticing the differences and making um, race-based partiality, choices on race-based partiality. That's what white people mean when we say in our hearts, when we say out loud that we're colorblind. We're trying to tell our friends who are people of color, I try with all my might to teach my children not to make race-based decisions. And, and, but the way that that's heard by people of color is I'm not recognizing that you're black, Mm -hmm. that your skin is darker than mine. Your hair is different than mine. Uh, I have the wash and go hair. You have the luxury of only having to wash your hair maybe once a week. Yeah, I have the wash and wait. <laughs> the wash and wait <laughs> for a day or so for yes. it to dry. Uh, yeah. But I think, you know, that's, it's a complicated issue. Uh, I think a point of misunderstanding by many people in our culture. And so I think what Ms. Uwan is saying is don't misuse that verse in Galatians and in Ephesians about the oneness to flatten out these differences um, when it comes to race. Throughout her talk, from the time she begins with her introduction and being Nigerian and growing up in a black neighborhood and with a a black family and things like that, an African family, there is a sense of pride. There is this almost a rejoicing in in being black. Yeah. And I don't understand why that also isn't extended to whites. Like, are people of color the only ones who get to rejoice in the way that we were made by God? I would feel like I was an incredibly racist person if I said I love being white or I love my white skin. And see, I I would I would be I would I would never I just somebody's going to clip that and they're just going to put it on Twitter and say (laughs) I'm a bigot. But I mean that I would feel so racist saying that because I've been really culturally programmed to hate my skin color in many regards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'll say every day, I love my skin color. I love Well, it's summertime. I'm normally like a caramel, but um, <laughs> I like, you know, being black there. And I can celebrate that. And I have no problem celebrating that. And yet what I hear, even from people who like who are who are white and like support CRT all the way through is this denouncing and almost like a hatred of shaming. uh, Yeah. Of who they are and who they have been created to be. And she clearly says, God has made me in my skin like this is how he's made me. Well, were you an accident? 
I don't know. You'd have to talk to my parents about that. Well, no, <laughs> no. But, but in, um, in God's program, in, in God's program, no there are accidents. no accidents. That's right. And she even like goes to that end, like he did it on purpose. And so, if he's done that with whites on purpose, there is something to be celebrated there. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We look and we say, yes, this is flawed, but there is also something redemptive here. I I like how you say it sometimes that, you know, all skin is beautiful. All skin is beautiful. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's hard. It's hard for me, though, to hear that. Mm -hmm. It's really hard because there's so much social programming that happens from the time that you're a little kid as a white person that you are that being white is not a virtue being white is not noble to to be white is to be a person who's been part of a group that has done wicked things and there's so much social programming that happens around that it's really hard but I would agree, being white is to be part of a group of people who have done wicked things. Yeah. And so is being black. I can't sit here and say that, and I think this is what critical race theory, or not even critical race theory, but critical theory in itself leads to is this lack of responsibility that the crimes committed by people of color wouldn't happen if X, Y, and Z, if these things were in place. I don't know that I believe that. Actually, I can say for sure I don't believe that because biblically I am called to responsibility and to be responsible for my own actions. And so, yes, I can say that being a part of the African-American community is to be a part of people who have done wicked things. But hello, being a part of the human race is to be a part of the people who have done wicked things because we all have committed sin. Yeah, that's good. All righty. All right. I think we're going to stop it there for this time. We're slowly making our way through this video. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> there it is. It's been a it's been a while, but we want to thank everyone for for watching. And uh, we hope that you're finding this helpful. We really appreciate your comments and encouragement and to uh, let us know uh, how this is helping. We really want to ask you to share the video to um help us spread the word. We're really trying to, in our own small corner of the universe, start to change the race conversations that are happening in our culture and in our churches. We're trying to do our tiny part to um, get to sanity and something more biblical. And we don't claim to have all the answers. Not at all, even in the least. We still have many questions ourselves and still many things that uh, we're struggling through and talking through, but uh, we do hope that these are these conversations can model a, a different way mm-hmm. and to challenge things um, that we don't have to just accept critical race theory because it's the only framework that's come along that's addressing race issues. Yeah, there are other ways. Yeah. And so we're going to continue this conversation and uh, we do thank you for watching. God bless. Bye.